0: Hello and welcome to A History of the United States, episode 32, The Fusion of Church and State. Remember that this is a listener-supported podcast. If you want to support it, why not consider signing up for membership? You can do that by going to the website, thehistoryofpodcast.com, and clicking on the PayPal subscription button. This will give you access to exclusive premium episodes, which are released every two weeks. It only costs $4.99 per month. Last time out, we looked at the foundation of the Massachusetts Bay Company, and introduced John Winthrop into the narrative, electing him governor of Massachusetts in 1629. This was all to set up the expedition, which was to be launched next year, which we can now turn to. In April 1630, 400 settlers set off from the Isle of Wight on the south coast of England, heading for the New World. It was a two-month voyage, and they reached their destination in early June. But they were not very pleased by what they found there. What they were met with was the remnants of the old colonists at Salem, and they were not in a good way. It had been selected for their base, but there was little good land there, and a large population couldn't be supported. 400 settlers was a huge number for the time. Plymouth was almost 10 years old, and still only numbered around 300. What little land there was hadn't been cleared, housing hadn't even been built, Most of the population lived in a mixture of tents and wigwams. It wasn't a very promising site for Winthrop's City on a Hill. This could have ended very badly. Jamestown was a bad site for a capital in Virginia, yet it would take decades for the heart of the colony to move to a more suitable location. Had the Puritans been as obstinate... Perhaps I'd be telling you the story of how they settled in a bad location and all starved to death, like happened at Jamestown. But they didn't, so I won't. Winthrop was an intelligent man, and he was able to recognise the problems they would have down the line, so he moved south. Further down the coast was the land they needed. They initially landed at Charlestown, and then set up several small settlements around the bay, such as Newton, which would be later renamed Cambridge, Watertown, Roxbury, Dorchester, named in honour of Reverend White, and, of course, Boston. The size of the initial colony caused problems. During 1630, 1,000 Puritans would make the journey to these new settlements, It was the start of a great migration during which 20,000 would leave the Old England for the new, such numbers which hadn't yet been seen in the English colonies. It would take the outbreak of the English Civil War in 1642 to bring the migration to a halt. Considering the difficulties the pilgrims had in their first few years securing a food supply, you can imagine the scale of the problem facing fledgling Massachusetts. They had some key advantages over Plymouth. While the pilgrims had been forced to work out everything for themselves, they were the first Europeans to settle in the area. By this point, there was more of an infrastructure in place. Trade was common, and the geography of the region was known. It was Hard for them to secure food, but it was possible. Winthrop personally dealt with as many tribes as he could in person to negotiate for food to get them through this first year. June was too late for crops to be planted, as you will recall from our early episodes on Plymouth. Winthrop also sent a ship back to England in order to get more supplies. The whole operation was well done, it was organised, and they took advantage of the benefits of already having colonies set up in the region. But you can't move that number of people to a new colony without suffering problems. Jamestown and Plymouth were both around 100 strong when they were founded, and many of the other settlements we dealt with along the way were a lot smaller than that. The hundreds and hundreds of people brought there meant that getting enough food for a healthy supply would require a Herculean effort, and so while Winthrop did a sterling job, what followed was pretty inevitable. These first winters have been brutal for the settlements we've dealt with so far, and it would be no different for Massachusetts. They had enough corn to keep them alive, but barely. I doubt you would describe their physical condition as healthy. Then, they didn't have any meat, which added to their general weakness, lacking protein, which coupled with a lack of fruit and juice, resulted in scurvy, and then you have to take into account the freezing weather and the frostbite that followed, which, when factoring in the general malnutrition, resulted in an outbreak of disease at least 200 people lost their lives in this first winter. Given the large number of settlers, this isn't that surprising, and it could have been a lot worse, and a large percentage of the population did survive. But still, in terms of numbers, it is a pretty big loss. While the food crisis was going on, there were political developments afoot. I briefly mentioned the structure of the colony last time out, a governor and 18 assistants, but I left everything else a bit vague. It's worth getting into a bit more detail about it. Firstly, we need to make a distinction between this and other early colonies, particularly how its governance contrasted with Plymouth. When I first started my investigations into this topic and untangling the mess that is the early history of New England, I was interested in the role of Plymouth in the story. There had been earlier settlements than Plymouth, and there would be more important settlements, but Plymouth has a very special place. When I speak with my friends in the UK about the research I'm doing, A lot of the time they have no idea what I'm talking about. As much as I enthuse about Bacon's Rebellion, it means absolutely nothing to them. Most of my friends are classicists, so I'm not that surprised by a look of perplexity if I talk about anything other than the Roman poet Statius. But Plymouth is different. The Pilgrim Fathers, the Mayflower, these are names which mean something they've almost left the world of factual history behind, seeping into the world of the American legend, alongside George Washington and Abraham Lincoln. Why? This idea of American history versus the American legend is one I suspect we'll come back to quite a bit over the course of this series, and the more research I do and the more time I spend with those involved in the tale, will probably lead me to answers, but right now, I suspect it's due to the significance of their democratic government. Everybody owned a share in the colony in Plymouth. Everybody had a vote. When you look towards the idea of America as the land of the free, this makes for a very noble beginning to the story. While Plymouth was absorbed into Massachusetts, this origin story is preferable to the one of the substance of the state. The Pilgrims were very strange in their democratic approach. I can't stress that enough. Massachusetts had a very strong Puritan character, but it cannot be considered democratic. Puritans revered government. It was held as a divine institution, which was given to man by God, following the fall of Adam, in order to control his sinful nature. Followers of political philosophy won't be too surprised by this. It's not that far removed from the idea of the social contract, which would really take off in the 17th century. The idea that government is something used to control man's baser instincts is common to both schools of thought, But, whereas the social contract transitions from this start point into man giving up natural freedom in return for the benefits of society, the Puritans instead saw it as something imposed by God. The Puritans considered themselves to be God's agents, and that they took this burden of governing the world by his rules. They were to build the city on the hill you might think that this doesn't sound very democratic, and you would be right. The Puritans held that democracy wasn't a good thing. A government had no responsibility to the people. It was accountable to God alone, not them. I hope you're beginning to see why I'm finding this approach to the subject matter so interesting when compared to Plymouth, and why the United States might look towards Plymouth as the first chapter in its story, rather than Massachusetts Bay, when Massachusetts became a state and Plymouth didn't. With no democratic principles, there was no need for the government to be accountable to the settlers. So who were they accountable to, and who elected them? The shareholders of the company, known as the Freemen, were of great importance in the colony, particularly since so few of them travelled over from England. These freemen were supposed to meet four times a year in something known as the General Court. Once a year, they would choose the governor, deputy governor, and the 18 assistants. These would run the colony for the following year. Either the governor or the deputy governor was supposed to attend every meeting of the general court, along with six of the assistants. The government had the power to do anything which didn't go against the laws of England. About a dozen freemen made the journey, meaning that only seven were needed to function as the general court. Constitutionally, it would be perfectly possible for this small group to act as the government, without any input from the colonists, you can really understand why the Mayflower Compact is a far nicer opening chapter for the colony than this. That said, the charter was soon changed. The people of Charlestown were invited to the first meeting of the General Court in October 1630, and they voted to change the charter of the company, turning it into something of a constitution. The term freeman was redefined, so that it now referred to a free citizen. These were eligible to vote and stand for office. However, the oligarchic nature of the settlement remained. The citizens could now vote, but only for the assistants. It was decided that the assistants would then elect the governor and deputy governor. This is the key thread of the colony's early political tapestry, Democratic overtones, but fundamentally oligarchic in nature. In the next meeting, in May 1631, the colony was made a commonwealth, and 116 of the settlers were made freemen. These were the men who were not indentured servants. This is, on the face of it, democratic, aside from the obviously undemocratic fact that women were not included in the government but freemanship was restricted to members of the colony's churches. This was to keep the puritan nature of the settlement from being eroded away. Again, a point I keep coming back to, how interesting is it that this enforced religion into the government of the state is commonly overlooked in favour of the historically smaller and less important Plymouth? What we have here. Isn't a separation, but rather a fusion of church and state. This is a hugely important event in the story of the United States, the first large scale organised setting up of a colony, rather than the haphazard approaches of early Virginia and Plymouth, but one which doesn't enter the American legend because of its support of oligarchy and the fusion of church and state it's a fascinating curiosity that this doesn't come up more, but maybe I'm pushing this train of thought too far. I feel the need to clarify that a lot of the ideas expressed in this episode are my own, and this has been a lot more of Jamie the Historian than I usually put into episodes, so feel free to disagree, this is just me thinking out loud. In the next year, 1632, Inevitable political change was brought about. In such a small community, in which the powerful had nothing approaching the resources of the European aristocracy, it would be difficult to permanently establish an oligarchy. It was decided, therefore, that the governor and the deputy governor should also be elected from the freemen. Remember, though, freemen refers to the male members of the church this wasn't complete democracy. Two years later, in 1634, the demand for a fairer approach continued, and the people demanded that they see the charter for the colony, which had been brought over. Winthrop showed it to them, and they learned from this that the freemen had the power to make laws, even though they hadn't been able to so far, because of the oligarchic nature of the early setup. This realization sparked something of a radical change in the setup. It was decided that the general court would continue to meet four times a year, but that now each town would send a representative to the body. This turned the general court into an elected legislature. This is a rather important shift, but you will not be surprised to learn that there was an oligarchic reaction in 1635. A member of the colony, the Reverend Thomas Hooker, decided to leave Massachusetts along with his flock in order to found a rival colony, Connecticut. We will explore the specifics of this in more detail in a later episode, but when the matter came up to the general court, there was a division over whether or not to allow the departure. The deputies from the towns of the province had no issues with this, but it was opposed by the magistrates, who claimed the right to veto the action. This right to veto would be the major topic of political discussion in Massachusetts for the following decade, and would result in the court being divided in 1644 into two separate houses, a bicameral legislature. This gave a veto to both houses, the House of Deputies, and the Council of Assistants. But since there were fewer assistants than deputies, they had the advantage in this situation, when beforehand the deputies could just outnumber them in a single chamber. But we're beginning to get very ahead of ourselves by moving into political developments in the mid-1640s, so we'll call it here for this week and get into the more social and economic side of early Massachusetts life next time out. What was it like for ordinary people as they lived and set up the series of villages in Massachusetts Bay? This is what we'll cover. If you've enjoyed today's episode, remember that you can find us online at thehistoryofpodcast.com. This is the place to go in order to sign up for membership and accompanying premium episodes. Just click on the PayPal subscription button. You can also continue the conversation on social media, facebook.com forward slash historyofpodcast. You can follow me on Twitter at History Jamie and you can send me an email should you have any questions, comments or concerns. The address to send it to is the history of podcast at gmail.com. I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening.